Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, and we are continuing on the story of Cain and Abel, and the material that we looked at already so far, we've gotten up through verse 10. A little bit by way of review, though, just to look at verse 10, this is where God confronts Cain, and he says, uh, actually in verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know, my, my brother's keeper, in verse 10, and he, this being God, he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is one of those situations where we began to talk about it last time, how our decisions and our sin can actually cause problems in the way that we relate not only to God and to each other, uh, but also to uh, the way we uh, relate to the earth, or basically the fruitfulness of the earth. And we're going to see that a little bit more as we're moving into verse 11. Verse 10, then ending with, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Verse 11, So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And verse 12, When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. All right. So now you are cursed. Verse 11 there, now you are cursed. This is the second time a curse has been pronounced. What's the first time? When was the first time a curse was pronounced by God? Adam in the garden? Yeah. Fruit, yeah. yeah. When, the, when they ate the forbidden fruit, when Adam and Eve were in the garden being tempted by the serpent, they failed in following God's directives, and there ended up being a curse there. So here we have a curse, the first curse being on the ground, the curse being on the serpent. So here we have a curse actually on Cain. Curse actually upon Cain there. And it says there in verse 11, So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. Notice, um, this is the first time actually that a human is specifically mentioned as being cursed. And part of the reason for that, or part of the reason that the commentators uh, suggest that this is a a curse upon Cain uh, was because of the severity of his crime. And number two, what it was that was involved in the crime was a violation against something that was created in God's own image. All right. So because it was a vi- because it was such an egregious crime, and it was committed against something that was in the category of being created in His image, a human being, that it carried with it the potential to bear that curse upon the uh, upon the person of Cain. All right. Notice that he's not barred from contact with the soil. He's barred from the mm-hmm. enjoying the fruitfulness of it. Okay. So he's still going to end up having to eat. But it sounds like he's going to be reduced to having to wander around and find what he can find because it doesn't sound like that gardening is going to help much anymore. And that's actually where his identity and his livelihood came from was the ground. He was a tiller of the ground. This is what he did. And now God's saying that thing that you're used to doing, that place that you find your identity and what you used to do, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. You're not going to be able to just go out there and grow things to eat. You're not going to be able to go just go out there and grow things to present as offerings. That's not going to be the way of life that you're used to 
it's not going to be the way of life that you're going to get anymore, that that way of life is, is going to stop. It's going to come to an end as it, from this point forward. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. When you till the... How is this curse different from the one that was upon Adam? Remember, Adam had... He, he bore that burden, right? That uh, Something that had to do with the ground. But do you see any difference? He'd have to work toward it rather than everything <clears throat> come, come easy to him. He, right. But he'd get something out of it, but he'd have to work hard for it. Exactly. So originally in the Garden of Eden, it sounded like it wasn't going to be a whole lot of trouble to mm-hmm. find food. You know, Adam's job was basically to take care of the garden, to tend the garden. No weeds, no bugs. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> and then it became for Adam, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to sweat to get your food. And now for Cain, it's going to be, it's not going to give you food. All right. You're not going to be able to grow food anymore. So it's like taking it a step farther or a step beyond that. The verbiage there seems a little different too. He says in 11, and now you are cursed from the ground. But in 3.17, when talking to Adam, says you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. A little bit different there too. I guess yeah. It's like he's cursed the ground, but in this one he's cursing Cain. Good observation. Yep. Well done. So yeah, so you've got this. It's 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 a step further or a step uh, worse than I guess his dad's situation was uh, there. When it says a fugitive and a vagabond, do your versions have anything different there? Wanderer. Wanderer. Okay. So let me do some writing on the board here. So one is fugitive. One, the other one, vagabond. That's if you're reading the New King James. And then one of them is um. You. And then you have Wanderer for which one? The first one or the second one? Second. For the second one. So you've got Wanderer. Anybody else have any other translation there? Wanderer. You have Wanderer as well? Okay. These words, they have actually only show up in one other place uh, together. It's Isaiah 24.20. Isaiah 24.20. In Hebrew, this word is Nua, that first word. And in Hebrew, the second word is Nud. Nud. All right. These two words show up in conjunction with one another in together in the same verse of Isaiah 24.20. In Isaiah 24.20, it's got an interesting description here. It says, uh, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut. So they've got staggers and sways All right, over there. So it, it just paints a, a more complete picture as to what these words have, have to do with. So basically, Cain is going to be wandering. He's going to be staggering like a drunken man. He's going to be swaying throughout the land. He's going to be a fugitive. He's going to, his curse is going to be, you're going to just be on your feet. You're going to be moving around. You're not going to be able to settle down. You might have enjoyed you know, tilling this particular field, but you're done. You're going to have to keep moving. And probably part of the reason why you would have to keep moving is you're not going to be able to till the ground anywhere. You're going to have to wander around to find food. It's probably going to be, that's going to be the thing that, in, that insists that you are going to be engaged in this type of lifestyle where you're just going to be wandering around. All right, so part of the curse is the wandering around there. Like we were talking about a little bit in the study last week and now we're talking about right now, it has to do with this idea that sin separates us from God. It separates us from one another. It creates strains in those relationships. And it also creates a strain in the relationship that we have with the land. One verse I want to take you to regarding that is over in Psalm. Psalm 107, verses 33 and 34. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. So what is it that causes the 
bounty of God's creation to turn into a barrenness? The evil of its inhabitants. The evil of its inhabitants. Our sins actually have an effect on our place of living. All right? On the land. (laughs) Is that why it's so hot out right now? Good question. Is that why it's so hot out right now? I know. We smile and we joke and we go, no, really. Come on. That's ridiculous. Climate change. But you could suggest, is that why there's flooding? Is that why there's drought? Is that why there's earthquakes? Is that why you could fill in the blank with all kinds of things? And I'm, I'm not trying to suggest to you that the things that we're seeing today are a direct correlation to the sin of the nation. What I am suggesting is the Bible would seem to support that that wouldn't be too far-fetched. Okay? So I'm not going to say to you, well, our drought is because of our sinfulness. But I would say to you, that picture isn't inconsistent with what the Bible portrays. That a sinful nation ends up bearing a burden of a land that's uncooperative. <laughs> okay, in a sense, all right? A land that goes from things like, what were those? What were some of those things that we read? A fruitful land into barrenness, rivers into deserts, water springs into dry grounds. These kinds of things that, you know, a lush, beautiful place that God would create for, you know, the habitation of human beings becomes a desolate wasteland that's hard to find a place to survive in. Something to consider. Something. I mean, maybe, maybe there is something to the drought and the floods and the earthquakes and the you what you know fill in the blank. Maybe that is God's one of God's ways of saying, "Hello, <laughs> hello." I'm trying to get your attention. <laughs> I believe that God is gracious and he's very patient. But I also believe that he tries to get our attention in small ways that incrementally get bigger until we would finally say, what, huh? (laughs) Where am I? What am I doing here? Who's knocking at the door? Oh, God, come back in. Hopefully we as a nation might say, come back in. And if droughts or floods lead us to that point, great. Great. All right, moving on from there. Genesis 4.13, everybody follow along then, going back to Genesis. Genesis 4.13, and Cain said, I'm really sorry for what I did. I have sinned egregiously against my brother, my family, and my God. Oh, Lord, please forgive and restore me, although I, I don't deserve your mercy. That's not what yours says? No. What does yours say? My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I will be me, 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 I, I. Isn't that something? Cain isn't saying sorry. Cain isn't showing any signs of remorse or regret, repentance. He's not doing any of those things. He's saying, this is all about me. He's saying, oh, my goodness. He's showing self-pity, but he's not showing remorse for the crime that he's committed, right? Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. His pun- what is Cain's punishment? Wander and not being able to work yeah it's gonna be hard to find food and you're gonna be wandering around yeah. and he goes oh that's hard for me to bear not, not bad for a murderer <laughs> not bad for a murderer exactly. is exactly right <laughs> turn to genesis chapter 9 verses 5 and 6 and we'll find out what god said the punishment would be for this crime by the time we get to genesis chapter 9 genesis 9 verses 5 and 6 somebody might reading that through your lifeblood i will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, 
from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Excellent. How about one more? And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Excellent. Thank you. So what is the punishment later on? By the time Genesis 9 rolls around, what's the punishment for the crime committed by Cain? Death. Yeah, death. You, you were to die. You killed somebody, you die. That's the punishment. Even for the animals. Do you notice that? Even if an animal kills a person, what's the punishment for that animal? The animal's to die. All right. This carries over even into modern society, and Paul talks about it in, in Romans, in fact, where the responsibility for carrying out this punishment is entrusted and invested in, into the governments. Okay, so now it, it's not that we have open season to go, oh, you know, somebody killed my brother, my sister, my uncle, my dad, whatever the case might be, and we go hunt them down and kill them. No, he's entrusted that our, our representatives, in, in a sense, the people that are serving over us, our leaders, should be bearing in society the potential to be carrying out just punishments for the crimes that were committed, okay? Whether or not that happens nowadays, well, I'll let you judge for yourself. But by the time Genesis 9 rolls around, the punishment is clearly articulated to be Cain should be dying for his crime. Cain should have died for his crime if the punishment was the same back then. Why God didn't kill this guy, we don't know. Maybe God decided, you know what, I'm going to come up with something new by the time Genesis 9 rolls around, and I'm going to decide this is what's going to be the punishment. I should have had this in place by the time it came, but, oh, well, I missed that opportunity. Another possibility is that God can create exceptions if he wants to. In, in this situation, perhaps he did have a bigger purpose for letting Cain live. One of the purposes could have been, you're going to, we're going to find out as we're moving through these verses, Cain ends up bearing a mark. And he's going to be wandering around throughout the land bearing some sort of mark, and we don't know what that mark is. But presumably it's identifiable by the people that see him as, hands off, don't touch this guy, even though he's a murderer and you know he's a murderer, don't kill him. All right. So that's what the mark is. Perhaps he's going to be going through the land and it's going to be serving as a reminder to everybody else, hey, God takes seriously if we take somebody else's life, and this is a walking example of that. Or even that God is merciful. Or even that God is merciful. That's clearly taught in the Bible. That what we deserve, we don't always get because of his mercy. We all deserve hell for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we deserve, just as Cain deserved death. The wages of sin is death. I've sinned. I'm pretty sure everybody else in the room has sinned at one time or another. <laughs> We've all sinned. We've earned death. Just as Cain has earned death. But God withheld it. Perhaps for no other reason than he can do what he wants. And in mercy, he may choose mercy over law. Grace over law. Interesting. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Verse 14, surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. That word there for face, you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. In Hebrew, it's this panim. It's also the same word that shows up in the very next phrase. I shall be hidden from your face. All right, so he's, he's concerned he's going to be driven out. He's going to be driven away from the face of the ground. He's also going to be driven away from God's face. Okay? We were talking about, we've joked around a little bit, how... 
It was like Adam and Eve when they were kicked out of the garden. It was like a protective order, a restraining order, keeping them away from a particular location. Well, by this time, Cain's driven away, and the protective order is enlarged to not only protect the location, but now it's a no-contact order. Stay away from God. <laughs> okay? Stay away from God and stay out of this place. All right? Here to get away. Here to go away. One of the interesting things about this, about his face, turn to Psalm 51.10. Psalm 51.10, this is going to become immediately familiar or recognizable when you get there. Psalm 51 is the psalm that was written by David when he was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. What does it say in verse 10 through 12? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Excellent, thank you. Do you guys remember that worship song? Yeah. It's such a good song. Create in me a clean heart. That song was really formative for me, you know, growing up when I became a Christian in my teenage years and going to church. That was a popular worship song in our youth group. And it's those original worship songs in those days that seem to stick with me better than even modern ones. And right there, it, that's right. those are the words of the song right there. When you get to the point in verse 11... You know, do not cast me away from your presence. That word that's translated as presence is this word right here. The same word in Hebrew that's translated as God's face over in Genesis chapter 4 is God's presence here in Psalm 51, 11. It's God's presence. It's God's face. It's a very common word, but it, it, it can be translated in either of those ways or, or several other ways as well. But what I'm suggesting to you is when... Cain is saying, you're casting me away from your face. You're hiding me from your face. It's being hidden from his presence as well. Turn to another passage here. Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Second book of the Bible. Exodus 33. Another very familiar passage. Exodus 33. 12 through 23. It's a long long one right there. We're going to look especially at um, verse 14 though. Exodus thirty three twelve. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Verse 14. And he said, this is God speaking now, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. My presence. So that's the same word right here as well. That same word. So what Cain's concerned about or what he's conveying is not that he's not going to be able to see, you know, God's cheek and his nose and his chin and his teeth and his eyes and his, you know. No, he's concerned about being cast away from God's presence. Turn to Ezekiel. All right, Ezekiel is one of those larger prophetic books after the book of Psalms. You've got some other major prophets in there, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel 39. There's this interesting thing it says here in Ezekiel 39, 23. It actually, the whole section goes from 21 to the end of the chapter 29. We don't need to read all of it, but I just want to point out verses 23 and 29. Verse 23 says this, The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I hid my face from them. Same word. Verse 29. Something's changed. And I will not hide my face from them anymore. 
for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. These two passages here, one having to do with they get cast into captivity, God hides his face from them, and then later on, he doesn't hide his face anymore. Anybody know what Ezekiel 38 and 39 has to do with? Does this sound familiar, those chapters? The Gog-Magog invasion. All right? So this is immediately following the defeat of Gog and Magog. All right? This is stuff that we typically listen to and hear about and say, yeah, future. And immediately following that, it seems to be suggesting that God won't hide his face anymore from Israel, that God's going to reveal something, his face, his presence to Israel. That's kind of intriguing. Another one, turn to John, chapter 1, the Gospel of John. If God's face is God's presence, John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And jump over to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Excellent. Who's the Word of God? Jesus. Jesus, right. Jesus. So the Word of God is Jesus. And Jesus then... if. Is it reveals to us in verse 14 that's Jesus is the one who's the word of God we translate that we put that back into chapter 1 verses 1, 2, and 3 we find out it's talking about Jesus in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God Jesus was in the beginning with God all things were made through Jesus and without Jesus nothing was made that was made and then turn over to chapter 14 verses 8 and 9 John chapter 14 verses 8 and 9 what does it say over there? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So if the face of God is the presence of God, and if we look at God hid his face from his people from because of their sins, and then he says, there's coming a day when I will reveal myself again to my people. And then we have here in the time of Jesus where Jesus is revealed to the people as God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus is here as God, the Son, and he appears and Philip says, hey, show us the Father. Jesus, you've seen him. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Okay, so there's that brief period of time in the time of Jesus when God is revealed, God is not hiding his face from his people. But there comes a problem, right? He says, oh, you guys should have caught on that this was me. But you blew it. And now your house is going to be left to you desolate. And the people end up, Israel and Jerusalem gets destroyed. Israel gets basically overrun. And then they're not a nation. They're not a nation for a long, long time. Until 1948, they become a nation again. Is God going to reveal himself to them? Yes, still yet future. Paul says, is God done with Israel? No, he's not. There's still something coming when God's going to reveal his face to him. There's still something coming for us as well. Even if we're not Jews, we don't feel like we don't have to feel like we're going to miss out on it. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. If you're one of God's people in the sense that you're a follower of Christ, Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5. This is the last chapter of the Bible, verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits and each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, 
and his name shall be on their foreheads. There's coming a day when we'll all get to see his face again. We'll all get to be in his presence. Right now, what is the situation right now? Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right now it's kind of like we're looking through a glass dimly. But then we shall see face to face. He's talking about a time yet future. Even for us, still to come when we'll be able to see face to face. So this despair that Cain's expressing about, hey, you're driving me away, going back to Genesis chapter 4. Hey, you're, you're driving me away. I'm not going to be able to see your face anymore. I'm not going to be able to enjoy your presence anymore. That was a permanent situation for Cain. He died in that condition. And we may die before we see the day that's promised in Revelation 22. But we know, still yet future for us, we will get to experience Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. We will get to be with him in his presence, face to face. Looking forward to that. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, the east of Eden. That's verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16. The land of Nod to the east of Eden. Do you remember which direction Adam and Eve had to go when they had to leave the garden? They were driven out of the east. They were driven east of Eden. And here, Cain is driven even further east. You know, it's interesting when you look back at verse 14, where Cain says, I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. The weird thing about that is that God says, I'll actually give you a mark then. I'll put a mark on you to protect you. In verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Isn't it strange? Isn't it ironic that what Cain did to his brother, he's now concerned that somebody will do to him? (laughs) And it's actually the same word. He killed his brother, and now he's like, Oh, somebody's going to find me and kill me. Right? Really? You didn't think this through? (laughs) He kills his brother. Now, ironically, he's concerned that somebody will kill him. Oh, and there's more irony. He killed his family member. And who's he concerned about is going to kill him? It's only family. That's all that there is. He killed a family member. Oh, my goodness. Now my family, some of my family finds me, they'll kill me. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Turn to Numbers 35.19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers... Numbers 35.19. What does it say there? The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. So this is the provision that God (laughs) has in place by the time we have it written down in Numbers by Moses. That basically, you killed somebody, their family members could track you down, hunt you down, and kill you. And in this situation, Cain kills a family member, and it's his own family that he's concerned about is going to end up killing him. Yeah, a little bit of irony there. Other people have had marks put on them in the Bible. Can you think of some other people? Oh, good. Turn to Revelation 14.1. Revelation 14.1. I'm going to answer that with a kind of. What does it say there in Revelation 14.1? Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Good. So here we have a situation where it doesn't say they're going to have a sign put on them or a mark put on them, except more specific than that, right? That they're going to have his father's name written on their forehead. So in a sense, it is a sign, but in a more specific sense than we have somewhere else. So good, yeah. 
So Revelation 14.1, you got the 144,000. Anybody else that's going to get a mark? Mark of the beast. Ooh, verse 9. Look at verse 9. What does it say over there? 14.9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured at full strength into the cup of his wrath. Yep. So you do have people over there. In verse 9, you've got the people that are bearing the mark of the beast. Turn you back to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel, we've already been in it once today. Going back there, major prophet, big book. Ezekiel chapter 9. This whole chapter has to do with people that bear a mark. A mark put on them to protect them. All right. Let's go ahead. We have we have a few minutes here. I just want to read really quickly the entirety of chapter 9. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. It's going to get weird. Verse 2. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. This chapter this chapter has a hard pill to swallow because if God deals with people in principle, that is in the same types of manner, whether Old Testament or New you find that God's fed up with the wickedness in the land, a land that is exceedingly perverse. It's full of bloodshed. Regarding perversity, maybe you guys saw this in the news. Playboy has decided they're not going to feature nudes anymore. And when asked for the reason... Too easily accessible everywhere else. Yeah. It, they can't compete. That people just by clicking on the internet can find as much as they want to see beyond what they could show so that they feel like, eh, let's change the way we do our company then. How perverse does our land have to be that Playboy can't supply what used to be taboo? 
can't supply what they started. Yeah. It's gotten so perverse that they, it's run themselves out of business. <laughs> but what I'm seeing in this chapter of Ezekiel chapter 9 is the land has gotten full of bloodshed, so perverse that God decides who are his, and all the rest are killed. His are preserved. But I tell you what, it was probably not a fun place to be, even if you had the mark. Because <laughs> your neighbor was killed. Maybe somebody in your old household was killed. Now, this is a vision. But still, to read about that, it's sobering to think about our land and how God has held back his justice so far and what might be in store in the future if this type of character of God shows up again. And God doesn't change. He's always the same. Hmm. So yeah, people bear marks in different places in the Bible. Cain ends up bearing that mark to protect him. And in God's grace, he allows Cain to live and he sends him out protected. He didn't deserve either of that. He didn't deserve to live and he didn't deserve to be protected by God. And I don't either. But I benefit from it as well. God watches over and protects me. And he doesn't stuff me out as readily as I deserve to be. Everything I have, I owe to him. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that your word provides a deep and rich picture of your nature, your character, and, Lord, our responsibility. Lord, we owe everything to you. And we thank you for your patience, for your kindness, for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Because if you were only a God of justice, there would be none of us left. And so, Lord, because we still have breath in our nostrils, we say, what would you have me to do? We desire, Lord, to say thank you. And we want to know what you're calling us to be and to do. Empower us, embolden us, give us courage, give us strength to do whatever it is that you would ask of us. You have the right to do so. And we pledge ourselves willingly. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.